Our next speaker is going to talk about a little piece of how one individual helped form this monument and protect that wild river. And it all happened because I got a call from Zane Fulbright one day and he said, I found this stuff in my office and I found it was, I was the archeologist and I was cleaning out my office to become the manager of the monument and I still had it and I don't know what to do with it but I think there's a story. So anyway, so Zane and I, so I said, well, I know a Fulbright scholar Zane Fulbright, who might be able to help us. And so there's like not really any correlation there. But Dr. Kira Ryan was uh, living and working at other things in Helena at the time. And so she very kindly took on this research contract and that was the start of her uh, real association with the History Foundation. And now Dr. Ryan is our program director. She runs all our special projects. She runs our grant program and she is currently working on a biography of Henry Sieben. So uh, Kira completed her PhD on uh, using Irish language documents in Butte. So she has some really good friends in Butte because those archivists could not read those Gaelic language documents and uh, Kira was the first to um, transcribe them uh, for Ellen Crane and her team there. So she also has some pretty good friends in Butte. Uh, but she finished her PhD and then she came to work for the History Foundation, but she is also a linguist and she has taught French, Spanish, and Gaelic languages in our universities, UM, Carroll College, and elsewhere? And Helena College. So, um, as I said, she is currently working on a biography of Henry Sieben uh, with the History Foundation, and I give you Dr. Kira Ryan. Hi everyone, um, thank you for being here. Thank you Zane for that wonderful presentation and giving that context for the person that I'm gonna speak about who was involved in that one portion of that large story that Zane just shared with you. I'm thrilled to be here today to share the story of one of the unsung heroes of the conservation world and that is Emil Dontigny. And he really initiated a boots on the ground approach in the conservation efforts to recognize the Upper Missouri River breaks um, as a landscape worthy of protection. And it really was, as Charlene just mentioned, a series of fortuitous circumstances and good timing really that led to a collaborative discovery of Emil's work. Um, in 2018, Richard Dontigny found this box in his closet of his belonging to his father full of maps and photographs and diary entries belonging to his father and he knew that it was an important there was an important story there so he contacted the BLM and luckily it landed on Zane's Zane Fulbright's desk and as you just heard he contacted president and CEO of the History Foundation and friend Charlene Porcelt and the foundation has had the privilege since then to be able to organize and research Emil's collection um, we've also been fortunate enough to meet with and to interview Emil's children and his grandchildren to try and put the pieces of Emil's river tale together. Um, and I'm also delighted to say that Emil's collection, his family donated the collection to the Montana Historical Society last year. And so 
the slides and the maps that are already at the Historical Society belonging to Emil, they are now joined with his uh, records. So they are now part of our state's permanent record. Um, so Emil, uh, Emil Dantigny, was born to was born in 1901 to Francois Xavier Dantigny and Stephanie Grandmont on the Riviere Ora, and that's not a that's not a river that sounds familiar to Montana, right? It's a tributary of the San Maurice River, and that's north of the Gulf of Saint Lawrence in French Quebec in Canada, and uh, where his family owned vast timberlands. And so this is the St. Lawrence, this is the St. Maurice, and this Latouque area is where Emil grew up. And it was on a small, it's a small community with lots of timberlands and on the water, right? So he was familiar, very familiar with waters by the time he came to Montana. He was also one of 10 children. His mother, Sifroni, who is here on our left, she was raised in a prosperous family in French Quebec, and so she infused culture into the woods of Riviere Ora. She hired French tutors to live with the family and to educate them in the traditional subjects, but also in arts and crafts. And so also growing up on the San Maurice River, the children were very familiar with canoeing and anything related to the water, uh, fishing, uh, snow shedding, etc. And in, in that environment. And apparently the family even had a 40-foot canoe <laughs> that they would travel in. So I, every time I read that, I think, what a fun way to get to school. <laughs> way more fun than in, in a car. Um, uh, sadly, Emil's father died in 1903. And he left his, um, he left his wife, Sifroni, with perhaps as many as 10 children still living at the time, under the age of 16. And Emil was only two at the time. Uh, we know that Sifroni, she stayed in that same area with her family, making a living through timber contracts that her family had. Uh, so she was able to eke out a living for her family. But by 1917, she decided that their family would paddle their own canoe, literally. She had made a connection in Malta, Montana, where she secured work for her sons. And so she decided to leave Quebec, the home of her ancestors, for almost 300 years. So she loaded up her remaining family into a touring car, and came across the border uh, in Vermont on their way to Malta, Montana. And this is just a wonderful photograph that Emil's granddaughter, um, Laura, shared with us uh, in the, while we were researching about her, about her um, grandfather. And it's a picture of some of the family. So that's Sifroni in the middle with a bouquet of flowers. That is uh, Aurora with an umbrella. And that's Juliet with a fantastic, terrific hairstyle <laughs> over here. I just, you can see clear when it's up closer. And these are the th what, three of the brothers here, Adelar, Alphonse, and Emil. And they're all gazing in different directions, but I love how the American flag is flapping in the background. And they had, they were now in the United States. And they had pictured, I think they really captured that moment perfectly in that photo. The family spent a couple of years in Malta, and then they moved east to Bainville, where Emil spent a short time working as railroad operator. And slowly the children paired up with spouses, and they spread out among, amongst different places in Montana and the Dakotas. Sifroni died soon after in 1936. But she has for definitely got her family's and my own admiration for the bravery it took for her to leave Quebec and her home and bring an entire generation of Don Tignes to the United States. 
So here we have a dashing photo of a youthful Emil, uh, dark and slim. And he, soon after arriving, and the family spent time in Bainville, Emil clearly had inherited his mother's love of art. And so he moved to Chicago, where he attended the Chicago Painting School of Interior Decoration and Design. And he also studied art appreciation at the Chicago Art Institute. But Montana drew him back. He got a job working again on the railroad in Havre this time. And this is where he made his home, his permanent home. He settled in easily because he met a local girl here, Helen. And as we can see here, she was really glamorous, very well dressed. She worked in a dress shop. She loved to play cards. And according to her family, literally every family member said that she had a wicked sense of humor also. <laughs> she was known for that. And in, so in this home in Haver, you had the grandparents, Emil and Helen, and their four children. So it was a busy, busy home. But Emil was used to that. He was one of 10 children when he was growing up. And so after a few years on the, on the rail, working in the railroad in Haver, Emil then spent time working in a clerk's office and then a job opened up in a creative field. Now, unsurprisingly, it wasn't as a paid artist, right, in Haver, but he did get a job working in the movie business. So he worked for a local theater owner, working in the Orpheum and Lyric theaters. And he even then moved to East Helena for a year and he opened what was called the Don Theatre, which I presume is after his name, Don Tigny. Um, but it only lasted for a year, and then he moved back to Haver again with Helen. And after this, he and Great Falls businessman Clarence Golder, they partnered, and they took over a kind of a down-on-its-luck Haver Theatre at the time. And in 1949, they established the first open-air um, drive-in theatre, which I think is super fun, um, in, nor in the north central section of Montana. And it was known as the Sunset Drive-In, and it was located within sight of Haver, Haver City, and it accommodated up to 400 cars. So Emil continued to operate the Haver Theatre in town and the Sunset Drive-In until his death in 1969. And just as a quick side note, I also mentioned that he was an art trained artist, and although he never made his living being an art, uh, working in art. He did um, design all the theater signs for, for the Haver Theater and the Sunset Drive-In. And in 1940, he also collaborated with a San Francisco photographer, Maurice C. Wright, on the design and airbrush reproductions of a pictorial book um, about Montana, entitled, When You Come West, You Will See Montana, Land of Shining Mountains. And also in 1959, celebrated Western artist and sculptor um, Joe DeYoung. He lauded Emil's skills as an accomplished airbrush artist and even expressed his own regrets to him in a letter about he had never learned to handle an airbrush. Um, and he enclosed in one of his pieces of his correspondence this Christ old Christmas card that he says is the last remaining example of that, those light burned edges that he did. So that was a nugget that we found in his collection too. Now, it wasn't until 1957, so Emil had been in the United States 40 years at that point, and in Haver for 35 years, that Emil took his first trip down the Missouri River. And it was good timing, as if you picked up on Zane's presentation, 1958 to 1968, things got interesting in that portion of the river. And he took his first trip down the Missouri River with his brother-in-law, Cy Morrison. 
and his parents' stories of the exploits of early-day French-Canadian trappers in Quebec apparently inspired him to take the Lewis and Clark Trail to rediscover its history and adventure. And as Zane outlined earlier, before that trip in 1957, there's little evidence of the Missouri being used for recreation purposes. So Lewis and Clark and Alexander Philip Maximilian had explored the area in the early 1800s, but after that it was all business coming up the river. Pleasure trips down the river were few and far between. And I feel like this would have added to a sense of adventure that Emil and Sai felt when they loaded up here in Fort Benton and their 14 foot runabout cruiser um, and their terrified son, <laughs> Emil's terrified son left them, dropped them off. He, he still looked pale when he talked about it when I interviewed him. Uh, where they began their trip, or what turned out to be an odyssey, to Fort Peck. So they went from Fort Benton to Fort Peck. Emil kept a diary of the trip, and along the way he took photos of landmarks, rock formations, natural scenery, and wildlife. But it wasn't all sightseeing along the way, as their motorboat ran out of fuel, six miles of course, right? Out of fuel, six miles from Fort Peck Dam. So they ended up clambering onto the banks of the river, hiking the rest of the journey. It's like something out of a movie. Uh, they had, I think, very little water, no food. They had to hike for nearly 24 hours, dragged in at the end, um, and two days they were hiking. Oh, sorry, they hadn't eaten in two days, but they were 24 hours walking. And so a reporter, the local newspapers, right, were all over this. They loved this story. And so they came, they interviewed them. And what's very, very funny is that Sai, his brother-in-law, vowed to never return and go in the water again. <laughs> right? Kind of, yeah, you think pretty sensible. Uh, Emil, the opposite. Emil was exuberant in his descriptions of the trip. Uh, his diary notes are really interesting and funny to read because they're just replete with descriptions of the spectacular scenery that he describes as resembling, resembling Roman and Greek temples, some looking like churches with spires, others like the Madonna holding the child with draped figures around her. Uh, he, he couldn't wait to get back out. And so it was this trip in 1957 that put him on a course that would help him that, that put him on a course to help save the Upper Missouri River breaks from development, and that development that Zane mentioned. So by the time Emil had taken this trip in 1957, he was an amateur historian, and he was a member of a local history group. And so when he returned back alive from the journey, he began researching the history, geology, archaeology, flora and fauna of this river and especially of the 113-mile stretch of the river between Virgil Ferry and Robinson Bridge. He read widely to learn about the great Indian nations who knew the river first. He studied articles on the Swiss artist Karl Bogmer, who Zane mentioned also, who joined Maximilian on his scientific expedition of the area. He drew heavily from the journals of Lewis and Clark, and he made several more float trips down the river to identify and then photograph campsites, formations, Indian encampments, buffalo jumps, rivers, and streams that they had named. And Emil's family let me know that he consulted lots more books than we were given, and that he always, for some reason, signed, autographed page 101 of his books. So I don't know if anybody knows if there's a hidden meaning behind 101, but that's, that's what happened. He also ordered maps and official documents from the Department of the Interior and the US Geological Survey including the Missouri River Commission maps of 1893 and a list of steamboat wrecks on the Missouri River. 
And he bound those maps in cowhide, as we can see here, and he also autographed them. And the Missouri River maps are particularly striking. The pole here, which I'll show you as well in a second, has the dates and the names of the steamboats that came up the Missouri, burnt into the, into the pole. And of course, with all this accumulated um, knowledge of the area, he, <laughs> he often spotted mistakes, right, on the official maps. And I mean, he wasn't light-handed, right? He really went for it. He really started filling, filling in all this extra information that he had about the area. Um, and this is an example of the assistant director of Fish and Game at the time published an article, and he took out his red pen. And he started, no, 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 making notes. So he was a, a, a Zudo teacher. Um, and he also took up to 300, go back here for a second, he took up to 300 photos of the major formations described by Maximilian on the river. And most of these are now held, those slides are now held at the Historical Society. So once he gained a thorough understanding of the river, he then began to share that knowledge with others. He originally, he first took family and friends down the river. They actually, they, came, they went out with him once he got more experience. And then he also guided local history and botany scholars and then accumulated information from them, them as well, right? So he was building up that research that he had started to gather. Soon he was gathering, he was guiding larger groups. In 1962, he led a 120 mile canoe trip with friends and outdoorsmen from Virgil Ferry to Fort Peck. And here is, oh, there he is there. There he is pointing at Eagle Creek, one of, the, one of the campsites where Lewis and Clark camped. And the next month he was leading a bunch of Montana artists um, down, the, down the river. And this time the newspaper was referring to him as a local businessman whose knowledge of the region of the Upper Missouri and its history has made him the local authority on the White Cliffs and the Stonewall region. So let's get to the good stuff, the fight in the 1960s. So as you heard from Zane, in 1961, the National Park Service, and I'm going to really just briefly touch on what you just said, because thank you, Zane, for explaining all that. The National Park Service conducted a National Park Survey of the area. The Park Service wanted to preserve the river stretch by desig designating it a Lewis and Clark Wilderness Waterway. The Army engineers wanted to construct dams along the route, right, which you learned from, from Zane. And they would flood many of the historic Lewis and Clark campsites and would damage the spectacular geological formations upstream. So clearly the two entities collided, right, head on, and a battle ensued. And since this stretch of the river is part of the nation's heritage, national interest was involved in the outcome. And of course, Emil was aghast at this. <laughs> His experience and reputation as a local authority on the Upper Missouri River inspired him to join the fight to preserve the area in its undeveloped state for future generations to enjoy. So he got to work. He understood that he could help the National Park Service's efforts by sharing the natural beauty and historical significance of the area. So what he planned on doing was taking prominent local and national academics, scientists, writers and filmmakers on guided trips down the river. He was going and determined to bring the area to life for them and then inspire these men and women to advocate at a national level 
for the protection of the national treasure. So Emil's collection, now at the Historical Society, it holds its own treasure trove of correspondence between him and these figures that he took down the river in the 60s. And they are definitely going to be of interest to scholars and the public um, in the future. Um, I have no doubt about that. They shed light on the events, politics and organisations and the ordinary citizens involved in this conservation battle. And just some of the highlights include a letter recounting his trip with members of the Missouri River Basin Project of the Smithsonian Institute in 1962. And this letter informs us that Emil's guided tour down the river was essential to them being able to successfully even complete their mission. Journalist Ralph J. Smith of the Omaha Herald, he took a trip with Emil in 1964, and he called Emil an authority on the river and local newspapers reported on their trip. The same year, Gil Stucker, who was a paleontologist at the American Museum of National History, he wrote a letter to Emil praising his expertise and knowledge of the river. Emil had guided him down the river and it inspired Gil to write op-eds for the New York Times on the issue. He arranged meetings in Congress because of his guided trip with Emil and encouraged him to continue his important, to continue his important work in sharing his knowledge on the river with the public. And this he continued to do. Here he is also on a trip with a group of, Nash, of travel riders from all over the country. So he encouraged them to promote the National Park Service's cause, and they did. As a result of their guided experiences with email, they published articles in the New York Times, such as this, the National Parks, Parks Magazine, and Wildlife News, and they included tales of their adventures in nationally acclaimed history documentaries. In a letter to the Secretary, of the, the Secretary of the Interior at the time, one film director, when highlighting the National Park Service's cause, referred to Emil as a friend carrying on a forlorn fight to save that beautiful stretch of the river. Regional newspapers also printed Emil's letters to the editor on the issue. And Emil wrote many letters to the editor on the issue. <laughs> um, and after reading one of them, Paleontologist Gil Stucker called, master, called Emil a master not only of the river, but also of the pen. And he was also an activist in other ways too. He hosted speaker evenings with local history groups he, and presented his collection of over 300 color slides of the river to schools, universities, service clubs, church groups, and all that encountered him described him as the leading authority on this wild stretch of the Missouri River. His advocacy work on, on behalf of the Park Service also helped unite various groups, um, such as the Montana Wilderness Association, the Montana Wildlife Federation, and the Stock Growers Association in one representative group standing up against the damming of the river. And so all in all, Emil estimated he took at least 50 trips down the river between 1957 until his death in 1969. And his son Richard likes to say that Emil rediscovered the White Cliffs, which I think is a nice way to put it. So thankfully, Emil lived to, lived to see that the efforts to preserve this historic stretch of the river had been successful. In 1968, as Zane mentioned, the Bureau of Outdoor Recreation recommended protecting the free-flowing stretch of the Missouri River between Colbank's Landing and the western boundary of the Charles M. Russell Wildlife Refuge. 
This segment would be called the Missouri River National, the Missouri Breaks National River. An email passed away a year after this in 1969. Since then, the Upper Missouri River was added to the National Wild and Scenic River System, and in 2001, it was declared a national monument. There has been little official recognition of Emil's pioneering work since then. But therefore, it was, it was fitting that in September of last year, um, on the 20th anniversary celebration of the establishment of the Upper Missouri River Breaks Monument, um, the Bureau of Land Management invited us to attend that celebration and share Emil's story and his legacy, and honor his legacy. And Emil's children and his grandchildren were also in attendance at the talk. And I often think what a kick Emil would have gotten out of knowing that not only is this stretch of the river and its history being preserved for generations to come, but that Citadel Rock is now a national historic landmark. And Judith Landing and the Hagedone Homestead are on the National Register of Historic Places. So one day, perhaps, Emil's name will be officially also recognized alongside other well-known conservation, conservationists, such as Paul Roos, Cecil Garland, George Darrow, Jerry Jennings, and many others who have made significant and lasting contributions to the restoration and conservation of Montana's wildlife and its wild places. Thank you.